You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Samantha Bond. Uh, she's a certified medical illustrator, uh, Unity cert- certified serious game developer, and a clinical assistant professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. She teaches medical game development and virtual reality, which is very interesting. So, Sam, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, what is medical game development? So that's a good question. It's something a lot of people ask when they first hear about what I do. Um, So medical game development has a really, really broad scope because there is a lot to learn. There's a lot that people don't necessarily know about when it comes to medicine, when it comes to their healthcare. So medical game development is really about using the, the successful components of learning games, of educational games, to teach people about medicine and healthcare. Um, Now the audiences for this can be a really huge range. So we have students um, who are making games for neurosurgery residents, and we have people who are making games for lay audiences, for for really general audiences who are just trying to learn about different topics in healthcare. Um, There are games in medicine that are about general anatomy. There are games in medicine that are about um, allergies or vaccines, the topics are pretty much endless and the audiences are really unlimited as well. Um, but it's all about using the power of games, the fun of games to teach people this really important content. So interesting. What, what kind of games and for what, you know, what purposes? Are these just for kids? Are these for adults or med students? Yeah. So uh, I can tell you that in my experience, I've made some of my own games. Um, some of the games that I have worked on uh, have been have included, there was a game called um, Carbo Buster that I worked on a little bit last year, which is a game for kids who were diagnosed with diabetes to learn about glucose, to learn about insulin, and kind of bust their carbs in a Minesweeper style game, right? And the way that you create a game that teaches about medical content is thinking about how a user is actually playing the game, like what they're doing as well as thinking about what it is you want them to learn. So if you want a kid to learn how to, on the daily, really think about their insulin and think about their glucose intake, then you need to create a game where they're thinking about this every day. So we created a game where kind of of Candy Crush style, they were rewarded for continuing to play more often, for continuing to kind of check in every day. And that was one of the major mechanics of the game. So you're using how they play the game to very, very literally inform what they're learning. Um, but it's, you know, it's more than just for kids. So we've seen a lot of games 
that focus on actual medical professionals as well. Uh, one of the, the concepts I mentioned earlier is I have a student right now, a research advisee, who's creating a virtual reality game for neurosurgery residents to kind of explore like a neuron forest, right? So that they can learn about neurobiology. So the same way that you would feel if you were kind of dropped into like five different forests, looking at all the different trees, like looking at how, you know, the redwoods look very different than another forest, right? It would be the same yeah. thing in teaching neurobiology. So you're dropped into these different neuron forests and you're really seeing how different pathologies can affect how the neurons look. So what they're physically doing very much informs what they're actually learning. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what's, um, what have you noticed? What have been the reactions from people using the simulations? You know, do you test them afterwards? Do you test them against people that just had to learn it from a book? I think when, we, when we've been able to test different games, it kind of depends on what the audience is, has experienced before with games. So we definitely have people who, you know, they might think like, I don't want to waste my time with a game. But once they get into there, you have to kind of legitimize it by presenting the information that you know that they want to see up front. So for example, if you think that your audience is going to be a little bit skeptical, you want to design the game in a way that presents what they already know they want to get out of it very, very quickly, you know? Um, so if it's a surgical game, you want to tell them very immediately, like menu screen on, this is what you're going to be learning so that they get into a more serious headspace about it. Um, but if it's, uh, for example, a game for kids, uh, like I created a card game this last year called Vax Bracket, which uh, walks kids and families through the science of herd immunity as a card game. Um, with that kind of environment, you, since you know that your audience is either a group of children or a family, card games aren't necessarily something brand new to that audience. So I don't have to like front load the game experience with this is what you're going to be learning. If anything, that might actually deter them. Um, so depending on who your audience is, you really have to decide how you're presenting that information to them. Hmm. Okay. Um, again, what is what is some of the feedback you've gotten? Do people say, oh, God, what a nerdy game. I don't want to play this. Or do they just engage happily? And, you know, what kind of results do you get from people doing this stuff? As far as results go, you know, we've had we've had people say like, oh, that, like in early iterations of a game. You know, this is this isn't like a traditional game. This might be kind of boring. Oh, I don't want to learn things. And that's when you have to very strategically make it so that the learning is kind of disguised. Um, but honestly, a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from student projects, from my own projects, has been, "Wow, I'm really glad I get to learn this in a way that isn't traditional, either traditional lecture or staring at slides." I think a lot of this mm. information is so complicated that people are relieved when they hear that they can learn the same content in a way that is presented in a way that's fun, you know? Well, you know, like when I was little, I remember there was the game operation I played, you know, it wasn't close to reality, but it was something. And then I played fight simulators where you could slowly add in more and more realism. So I would see like, I could see a game for surgeons, you know, let's say, or people that want to you know, learn surgery at medical school and you have like one version of the game where it's really easy and basic and not very real. And then you slowly add in complications and make it more and more difficult and more realistic. And I think that'd be mm -hmm. a great training tool for people so they can kind of amp up their skill and their specificity on, you know, the skills they're trying to learn. 
Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think, um, I think what you're kind of getting at is a term that's used generally as an educational principle called scaffolding. So the idea is that you, you start with your kind of level one content and then as it moves forward, you are adding more and more things in slowly so that the users or the learners, whoever it is you're talking to, kind of picks up information bit by bit. Um, but what you're kind of describing where it gets even more specific and the aesthetics, the look and feel of the experience changes too, is also really important. So I've seen, uh, I think there's a game for iPad where you can learn how to program in like the iOS programming language. But the first levels are not actually programming. You start out as like a little animal that's trying to get from like one end of a sidewalk to another. And then as you progress through the game, it becomes more and more like actual programming. So there are ways to kind of scaffold your content so that the users only pro only presented with each bit of information one at a time. But you can also mm. scaffold in how the aesthetics are so that they're really getting immersed in the environment that you want to immerse them in. So what's your approach? Are there particular medical conditions that you're focused on or is it just greatest need? I guess, how are you tackling this? What are you working on? So at UIC right now, I kind of have two different roles when it comes to game dev. Um, part of it is really overseeing my students' projects. Um, I teach two full semesters of medical or educational game development. Um, to medical illustrators for the University of Illinois at Chicago Biomedical Visualization Program. Um, and the, the Biomedical Visualization, or we call it BVIS program, is actually, it's only one of four accredited medical illustration programs in all of North America. So it's very competitive, it's very niche. These students come in with kind of a knowledge of, they want to educate people in the medical field using visuals. So what my classes do is kind of build on what they know about creating medical artwork or medical illustration and teach them about programming, teach them about designing projects in the Unity game engine so that they can create real educational medical games. Um, so my role with that is overseeing their projects, kind of guiding them to create things that have impact, uh, but also really kind of taking the projects from start to finish so that by the end of it, they have something really impactful in their portfolio. Uh, now in my other kind of role at UIC, um, I'm, I'm currently pursuing my PhD here in rehabilitation sciences. Uh, and my main project is what we're, what we're referring to as the clinical arcade. Uh, so this is gonna be where we're taking uh, cardiac rehabilitation patients, um, patients who have often just had either a heart attack or they're experiencing some kind of heart failure, um, heart failure patients in general that are going through a cardiac rehab program. And we're going to be presenting them with games that get them to move, but also games that educate them on kind of what is happening in their body, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Hmm, interesting. Okay. So uh, what's an example of what, you know, what's happening in their body? Is this like puberty type stuff or is this, uh, oh, when you eat a meal, you know, here's how it digests, where it moves. Like, what's what's your vision for it? So for the for the cardiac rehab patients, it's all about heart failure stuff. Um, but mm -hmm. I can tell you that for like for my students in the Beavis program, it's really fun because they get to kind of select fields that they're interested in, right? Um, so for example, a couple of years ago, we had a group of students that decided one of the one of the topics they had trouble learning was um, understanding different 
like digestive enzymes and what each of them do or what kinds of food each of these enzymes break down. So they created a game called, I think it was called Mission Digestion, where you are like sitting in front of a large intestine with a cannon of enzymes as different types of foods go through the small intestine. And you shoot these different enzymes at each of the food types. And it only really works if you use the correct enzyme. So you're having to actively, as the learner, you're having to select the correct enzyme to shoot at each different type of food. So you're timed, you're engaged, you're motivated to, to try all these different things, but you're forced to very quickly learn which enzymes do which thing in order to succeed in the game. Okay, gotcha. So what's, um, have you found that, I don't know, 2D videos on a screen is good, but VR, 3D type stimulations are better? Or, you know, is it the level of interactivity that really makes, you know, experience effective or not? Like, what are some of the factors that you can play with to make an experience uh, like super impactful to people? Hmm. I think that's a really good question uh, because that's something that that a lot of people ask, um, or or something that if you're thinking, you know, in in reverse too, if somebody says, "Oh, we want you to make a game," they might talk about a topic that they want the game to be on that an animation or a video would be more appropriate for, right? So really when it comes down to why games over something else, sometimes games aren't the right choice. Sometimes you should maybe go with just a classic illustration or an animation. Now what determines what you pick is really all about the audience and their resources and how much information you actually need to teach, right? So let's say you have an audience where you want to teach them about uh, healthy eating and nutrition, but the only way you really can get your audience to look at something is kind of maybe in their time at the waiting room, right? So if they're waiting for their general practitioner. So maybe the, the right way to address healthy eating and nutrition is to have an animation or a video playing so that they're right there and they're watching it. Because if you made a game for them, it's possible that they would never actually go and play that game. You know what I mean? But if it's something where it's a larger topic, maybe you think that uh, a game would engage a larger group, or it's something where you could get people to play it just by either marketing to a really specific audience. If you have a really strong plan about why they're going to start playing this game, then it's really appropriate to pick that. But a lot of it comes down to who is your audience, what do they need to learn, and why are they going to use the thing that you're trying to make, whether it's a video or a card game or a video game or just a set of drawings. Yeah, it makes sense. So uh, where do you see the big needs are? Like who's, is it, are there companies or universities or, you know, they're saying, hey, make this stuff for us? Or is it something that uh, you have to make and expose the public to and institutions to so they see the need for it? Do you mean they as in the audience or do you mean they as in um, like other companies? No, no, not the audience. I mean, the, you know, who would who would deliver this to to an audience? So could be a university mm. for students, could be a company to train its people, could be a government that wants to, again, get something out to the public. Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say that for the most part, the people who are delivering these games are often medical illustrators or medical game developers like me. Um, we might freelance, we might create games on our own um, and try to get them out into the public through something like Kickstarter 
Um, there are also educational game companies like Genius Games. Uh, they just recently came out with like a series of anatomical themed puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, for example. Um, and they also have some other board games and card games about cell biology and things like that um, that might be particularly good for use in the classroom, for example. So they would probably, or I'm assuming that they really target teachers and classrooms and educators to, to kind of get that out into their classrooms. Um, I know that there are companies in Chicago that focus on like surgical training. So the way that they kind of get their information or their content out there is by going to hospitals and pitching their, their programs to potential surgeons or med schools to get their content in the hands of the users. So uh, what, what is your most successful um, you know, game or visualization that you've created so far? Like what happened? Any good examples uh, that really stick out at you? I would say that Vax Bracket has been really successful so far. Uh, we're starting our Kickstarter for it in January, and that is my uh, my herd immunity and vaccination-based card game. Um, because I, I would rate it as successful because we've gotten it in the hands of a lot of classrooms already. And we've had kids and teachers kind of telling us, hey, we, we really learned something from this, and we would want to play it again. Those are the two real merits of success. Uh, from from my standpoint in terms of a medical game. It's, did you learn something? Did you take the information away from it that you wanted to get? And would you be willing to play it again? Because if the answers to those aren't yes, your game has failed as far as medical games go. You need something that really teaches people, but it also needs to be something that they're willing to play again. Otherwise, the purpose of it being in a game is kind of flawed at that point, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. What's, uh, what's the hardest thing about doing what you do? Is it the illustration itself and being a good artist and drawer, or is it uh, designing a game that's engaging to people? Oh, it's definitely the, the game design itself. The game design itself is so complex sometimes um, because the way that you have to iteratively design a medical game is by thinking about that, that process that we talked about where you ask yourself, okay, what exactly do I want them to learn? And then you think, how could they spend an amount of time actually doing those things or practicing that skill set and then coming up with a fun concept that would get them to practice that? So I, I suppose really the difficult thing is coming up with the initial concept and then tweaking it over and over and over and over again. Um, I think another, another probably difficult part about just game design in general is playtesting and feedback. You have to have a very not, not a thick skin necessarily, but you have to be very willing to throw out your old ideas and embrace new ideas because what it is you're making when it comes to game design isn't really about what works for you. It's about what works for your audience, you know? So you may think, oh, this is going to be a genius idea. This is fantastic. And then you put it in front of a group of your users and they're like, oh, this is kind of boring. And I've seen, you know, I've seen people get heartbroken based on feedback that they just really don't expect. But one of the biggest traits of a successful game developer is being able to say, awesome, thank you for telling me that and throwing out the old and bringing in the new. Um, is it important to make a game experience like, uh, you know, in VR or is it okay for it to be really low tech as long as the game is a lot of fun? You know, use low level graphics but great action and great, great fun. And what's the heart of a great game? So I think when it comes to like video game technology, virtual reality technology, 
it kind of depends on, again, it depends on your audience. Like if this is for, if this is for a group of med students, I'm not likely going to make a VR simulation that requires them to be there for multiple hours. Because if this is for a group of students, most likely they don't have VR equipment of their own. And so they're sharing this in a classroom space, right? So I need to think about how can I make this a short VR experience so that all of the students have the time to do this, you know, so that it's not one person spending a lot of time in it. And frankly, a lot of the time, they don't want to spend, med students don't want to spend a lot of time focusing on something that isn't the study methods they already prefer, right? They don't have the time to just dedicate to playing around with things that they don't know work necessarily. Um, but when it comes to, you know, do we want to make this really, really high poly, really um, super realistic, very, uh, very fast or very CPU or processor heavy on the computer. Um, it's a lot about what information do we need them to take away from something. So if it's a surgical simulator, for example, we would absolutely need to prioritize that everything looks as realistic as possible. So that comes down to even small things like are, is the equipment that they're using exactly right for the equipment that they would be using, the instruments that they'd be using in this surgery? But if it's you know, something like, more uh, like haptic feedback or something like that as well, you know? Yeah, exactly. With, with VR, like it's so important to think about if your learning goal is so that they can develop muscle memory, then you need to have everything very precise. Uh, I had a team of students this last who did a uh, endotracheal intubation simulator where they were using the HTC Vive and one of the controllers actually turns into um, your, your like intubation equipment. So as it enters the throat, you can feel it vibrating in your hand, you know? Good. And that's very, very important to simulating that kind of muscle memory because frankly, that's, that's what you're trying to teach them is how to take that information and go back and use it when they have a patient on the table in front of them. Now, on the flip side though, if it's more learning about, um, let's see, like spatial relationships of uh, different muscles in the body, and you're doing that by like putting somebody in the body, like Fantastic Voyage style, at that point, haptics isn't really super necessary. And you could make it very stylized. You wouldn't have to make it necessarily super, super accurate to how the anatomy looks. Now, don't get me wrong. Accuracy is super important, but there is a certain amount of style that you can choose or like different aesthetic choices. So you could make it like a really beautiful, very low poly scene if you feel that it's going to engage your audience more because that's where you have the balance of, I want my audience to stay in it for longer. So I think that this is important to include or stylistic choices are important to make. I was going to joke and say, forget about shoots and ladders. I'd rather play like Indio, tracheal, whatever game you made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The students that worked on it, I think, were Norman Liu, Ryan Eret, Logan Y, and Julia Benden. They did an amazing job with it. Yeah, no, that's great. So, what's, uh, I don't know, what any super ambitious projects you're working on, or where do you see the near term future of this? Uh, this type of work going? As far as projects I've got working on, um, I'm actually working with a friend uh, named Michael Walsh. He and I, he's a neurosurgeon, and we're, we're looking at how to make iPad games um, for his neurosurgery patients 
to to feel a little bit more engaged. He has this really um, really fantastic kind of theory about Disneyfication, Disneyfication of the patient experience. Um, something he brought up to me at some point was, you know, patients are are very frustrated when they have to wait, you know, sometimes up to three to four hours in the waiting room. Like it it really is crazy how how long they have to wait in the waiting room. But on the flip side, people are willing to wait like four to five hours in line at Disney. So he had this thought of how can we make the waiting room experience something that's actually meaningful for the patient? Something where it's not mm. that they're just flipping through old magazines or scrolling on their phone for that long. How can we make it something that's educational to the experience that they're going through, something relevant to them, and something beautiful, something they want to look at and want to be a part of. So we're looking at how we can make educational medical games for neurosurgery waiting rooms. Um, we're also thinking about trying to make educational games on spine injuries and weight, how those things go hand in hand. Um, we're, we're looking at a lot of different topics, but that's sort of what I'm really excited about right now. Um, I think when it comes to the horizon, the future of medical games, um, I, I strongly believe that games can teach people in ways that we haven't really even fully understood yet. I think people remember games very vividly. One of the examples I give in my classes is that, you know, I took anatomy when I was in graduate school, uh, and I, to this day, like I, I basically remember the brachial plexus, for example, but I don't really remember it that well. But I will tell you that I remember a lot of the button orders for the tunes for the ocarina in Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. So when I really think about what needs to stay in my brain, I would rather have the anatomy be the thing that sticks there. But the game experience is so strong and so powerful that we can remember things from games. And it's incredibly inspiring to be a medical game developer now because there's so much impact that we can have on people, um, especially now when, when healthcare and understanding your own healthcare for patient autonomy is just so, so important. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Sam, what's the best way for people to find out more or maybe to see prototypes or full versions of some of the illustrations or games that you've helped make with students? Oh, yeah. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I am Dr. Games Bond. Um, you, can, uh, you can follow me on there or you can go to drgamesbond.com. Yes, that is like James Bond, but with a G. Uh, drgamesbond.com. You can follow along with a lot of the games that I've made, including Murmur Spree, which is a heart auscultation game I made a few years ago. Um, or huh. Vax Bracket, which is going to be on Kickstarter within uh, 2020. Very cool. Well, Sam, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.